welcome everybody. Glad you guys are here. And uh, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3. So the third chapter of 12 in the book of Daniel. And those of you that were with us uh, our first week, I talked about the structure, the overall structure of the, the book of Daniel. Those of you who were not here then, uh, if you want to catch up, you can listen, on, listen online to those, uh, to those sessions. But when I talked about the overall uh, layout of the book of Daniel, I just want to remind you of what that is and how chapter 3 fits into it. Twelve chapters in Daniel, the first of those twelve chapters was about God's rule in bringing Daniel to Babylon. And then chapters two through seven are about God's rule over world empires. So six chapters, chapters two through seven, dealing with God's rule over empires. And in those six chapters, from chapters two through seven, there are six events that take place in each one of those chapters. One event, one large event in each of those six chapters. And what's, what's interesting is the symmetry between uh, the first three of those six chapters and then the last three. So chapters 2, 3, and 4, and then chapters 5, 6, and 7. There's a correspondence between those. You may remember that I said the event in chapter 2 is parallel to the event in chapter 7. And the one in chapter 3 is parallel to the event in chapter 6 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. And today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3. And that's going to correspond to something we're going to see later in in chapter 6. So how does that correspondence go? Well, in chapter 2 that we looked at last week... King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a, a dream, and uh, the, uh, the, the dream needed to be interpreted. Uh, I think that he remembered the content of the dream, but he, needed, uh, he wanted to test uh, his own wise men to see if they were running the scam that he suspected that they were. And so he gathered them to say, tell me the dream, not just the interpretation. They couldn't do that, as you know. Daniel could. And so chapter 2 has to do with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that was a dream of a great image, and this image was made of four different metals representing four different world empires. Now that's in chapter 2, and I'm telling you that chapter 2 corresponds to chapter 7. And we're going to see in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And Daniel has a dream of four beasts. And those four beasts also represent uh, four empires. And so you've got a correspondence between chapter 2, what happens in chapter 2, what happens in chapter 7. And now today we're going to look at chapter 3, and later we'll look at chapter 6, and those correspond as well. Today in chapter 3, it's about uh, Daniel's three friends being uh, put in the uh, fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to an image of that Nebuchadnezzar had commanded they bow down to. And in chapter 6, Daniel is going to be cast into the lion's den, again for refusing a command of the, of the, of the king. So 
you've got his three friends being cast into the, the fiery furnace in chapter 3. You're going to have Daniel being cast into the uh, lion's den in chapter 6. And then God humbles uh, two kings in chapters 4 and 5. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and he humbles Belshazzar in chapter 5. So six chapters, three, the first three corresponding to the last three, two to seven, three to six, four, four to five. So today we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's image that he created and commanded Daniel's three friends to bow down to. In your workbook, and I encourage you to do the homework in the workbook in preparation for our sessions together if you get time to do that. But they talk about this image um, on page 37, if you have the workbook. If not, that's okay. But on page 37, first paragraph, it says, Following the dream episode recording in, recorded in chapter 2, Daniel and his friends are promoted to leading positions in the government of the Babylonian Empire. And then it says they quickly encounter another life-threatening crisis. And it's the, it's the quickly part that I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced of, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Uh, I don't think that what happened in chapter 3 happened quickly after what happened in chapter, chapter 2. And I'll explain that as we, as we move ahead. So if you, have your, if you have your Bible, if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 3, we'll go through passage by passage and try to gain an understanding of what's contained there. Verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And so the satraps and prefects and governors and advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. Now let me just stop there. <laughs> now why doesn't, why doesn't Daniel just say, and so they did that? And so they, and so they all came. But he doesn't. He lists them all again. And the reason he does that is because he wants to show that every last person that the king says is supposed to do something does it. And so he belabors it by going through each of the, each of the names to, to make sure that you get the idea that nobody is not going to do this. Everybody's going to do this. So we're already being set up for the idea when the king says something, everybody does it. Of course, we, we know that some people are, are not going to do it, but, uh, but everybody in his, in his official entourage do that, and Daniel is wanting us to understand that. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So what's, what's going on here, and when is this... When is this going on? Well, the second chapter that we looked at last week takes place just a few years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he began to reign 
in 605 B.C. So his, his, his dream and Daniel's interpretation of that dream takes place in 602-603 B.C. So that's, what, that's the time frame of, of chapter 2. So now in chapter 3, you have Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image of gold and commanding everybody bow down to it. Now, why do you think I say that this probably didn't happen quickly after the dream of chapter 2? Do you remember it, how chapter 2 ends? Uh, if you look back at verse 46, the end of chapter 2, after Daniel has interpreted now this dream, verse 46 says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And the king placed Daniel in a high position. So if this happened quickly, you've got Nebuchadnezzar forgetting what it was he just said quickly. And that's highly unlikely uh, that he immediately or very quickly goes into now defying this God that he has just, whose power he has just seen. So there is probably some, some time that, that has gone by. Now, how much time? When we get to chapter 4 next week, we're going to see that chapter 4 and the event of chapter 4 takes place at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar's reign ended in uh, 562, 562 B.C. And so uh, 602, 603 is when he has the dream. 562 is what's happening in chapter 4. And then you've got this event of forcing everyone to bow down to the statue he has made in chapter 3. So how are we to relate those? In, in all likelihood, chapter 3 happens in 586 B.C. Now, does anybody remember something important that happens in 580, 586, which is about 15, 17 years into his, his reign? That's when he has a mass deportation of Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. In fact, that's the year that marks what's normally called the Babylonian captivity, 586. So Daniel and his teenage friends who were deported in 605, they were just the beginning of a trickle of, of captives that came over for a couple of decades or for several years until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar's had it with the rebellion of the Jews. And he goes and uh, takes a large number captive for 70 years into, into Babylon. Okay? And so what is, what is probably happening is after he has done that now, it's several years, you know, about 15, 17 years after this uh, dream in chapter 2. So he's had time to forget about God's power a bit. And he's ticked at the Jews. And he's ticked at their so-called God. And he wants to show them who's boss. And so in so doing, he makes an image uh, that he requires everybody to bow down to. And it's an image that is ginormous, to use my girl's term. And uh, it's designed to show the power and greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, it's according to what we've read, it was made of, was made of gold. And uh, you remember that in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that the head of the image that he saw in chapter 2 was made of gold. And Daniel said, you are that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. That head represents you. Now, the rest of the image, the chest and the arms, the belly and the thighs, and the legs were made of different materials, of silver and bronze and iron mixed with clay. But the head was made of gold. And then Daniel said, after you now, Nebuchadnezzar, there will come another kingdom that's inferior to you. And now in chapter 3, probably these many years later, he is making this image that is fully what metal? Gold. And what's he signifying by doing that? There is never going to be another kingdom like me. There's not, there is not going to be a kingdom to take over after me. And so the gold is not just the head. The gold is the chest and the arms, the belly and the thighs, and the legs as well. And this is in all likelihood what uh, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to, to show with the approach that he takes with uh, constructing this, this image. In fact, you can see the cockiness now that's developed with Nebuchadnezzar in the years since the dream that he had in chapter 2. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, when you hear, now he's talking to Daniel's three friends, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So you see, he is uh, letting these Jews know who's boss. And uh, despite uh, what it was that he had been taught, probably about 15 years earlier, in the dream that he had in chapter chapter 2. So, in all likelihood, this took place around 586 B.C. After this mass deportation, he's wanting to make it clear to these Jews, I am the king of kings, and you're going to bow down to my image, and it is this golden image. Now, the Bible says that it's made of gold. It was not, uh, I can say with great confidence, it was not made of pure gold all the way through. It's 90 feet. Okay? Um, so it's not made of pure gold. It's, 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 it's lined with gold. It's covered with gold. Uh, if, if it were made of pure gold, uh, that would be just about all the gold that the world has had <laughs> uh, over centuries. And as fabulously wealthy as Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, even he didn't have, have that much gold. So it was, it was an image that was, that was overlaid with, with gold in all likelihood. In fact, the Bible tells us that the uh, image or some of the, uh, some of the uh, instruments used in the temple were made of, of wood, and then they were overlaid with, with gold. So it was probably gold, gold-plated. And then it says it was, the Bible tells us that it was 90... Uh, by nine, ninety feet tall and nine and nine feet wide. Now, 
What it actually says uh, in Hebrew is that it was 60 cubits tall and six cubits wide. And what the NIV has done for us is given us the equivalent of that. So 60 cubits is 90 feet. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Now, why do I care about this 60 cubits thing? Well, here's, here's why. The, uh, the Babylonians did not use uh, a decimal system uh, like we do. They used a sexagesimal system. It was based on sixes rather than on tenths, which is what the decimal system is. And so that is why, then, he was making this thing 60 cubits and 6 cubits wide because that was the basis for their, uh, for their system. And we still have vestiges of that today. Uh, it's, the, it's the reason that we measure things in like a dozen you know, uh, or, or a half dozen, is because this this sixth thing has been hard to get hard to get rid of, and you have it in the British uh, vestiges of it in the British system as as well. Now, some people have said, "Look, you got a ninety feet tall image, supposedly that he made, and then you've got it, you know, nine feet wide. Uh, you're not going to be. First of all, the proportion is not right." Um, and how is it going to, you know, how is it going to stand? Well, in all likelihood, it had a pedestal, and the uh, the pedestal was undoubtedly part of the height of it as as well, and a good piece of the height as a base for it. Uh, and this was this was common in that part of the world to create these obelisks. In fact, that word is used in in your in the commentary in your your workbook. You guys have seen these, these just kind of straight up sort of spire kinds of things. Uh, you'll see those in the, in the Middle East. And you, uh, you had these in the time of the Babylonian Empire as well. Um, you know the Washington Monument is actually patterned after, after one of those as well in, in D.C. Uh, so just a, this idea of a, of a narrow, straight up, monument to someone or something. And that is what uh, Nebuchadnezzar has done here. And the height was not unusual. And when you are the guy who rules the world, then you can make it as tall as, as, tall as your engineers can, can manage. But uh, the Colossus of, of Rhodes in 300 B.C. was 105 feet high. And the engineers in Babylon were noted for their great skill in building towers and in building, building walls. And so that's kind of the background of what's going on here. Coming out of chapter 2, chapter 3, you've got a number of years that separate that. Nebuchadnezzar is, had it with the Jews. He's going to show them who's boss, and this is his way of doing it. And it also gives enough time for him to have forgotten the lesson that God taught him back in chapter 2 when the dream was interpreted for him by, by Daniel. In verse 5, says, here's what's supposed to happen. As soon as you hear the sound, and then gives these instruments, and as soon as you hear that, you're to bow down to the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, the, the last two of the instruments that are listed there have, have Greek names. 
No, who cares about that? Well, here's why, here's why you might care about that. One, because I'm going to talk about it. So you sort of have to care about it for the next few minutes. But here, here's why it matters. Because critics of the, the book of Daniel, and there are a zillion critics of the book of Daniel. You know what I mean when I say a critic of the book of Daniel? It's somebody that does not believe that Daniel lived at the time that this book purports a, a teenage Jew to have lived in Babylon. He could not have, he could not have lived uh, in the 6th century B.C. Uh, in Babylon. And the reason is, is because he's predicting stuff that's going to happen centuries later. So if you're somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural origin and character of the Bible, then you can't have a guy doing that. So this guy's going to have to have lived sometime later. And so they look for every possible way to show that Daniel could not have lived and made these predictions. Now, those of us who believe that the Bible came from God and that the Bible is God's revelation have no trouble believing that God revealed to Daniel the things that are recorded here at the time that the setting indicates. But those who don't believe in the supernatural character of the Bible have a great, have great difficulty with that. So what do they say and how do these Greek terms for these instruments fit into that? They say, look at this, you've got these Greek terms being used, which means Daniel could not have lived and written this any time prior to 332 B.C. Because that's when Alexander took over the world in his conquests and the beginning of the Greek Empire. And it's when, it's when Alexander made Greek, the lingua franca, the common language of of the world. And so that's the only way, say they, that you can explain these uh, Greek uh, words for these uh, couple of instruments. But like all of these uh, critical approaches to the Bible, it, it doesn't stand up to, to scrutiny because it doesn't take into account the close contacts that Greek traders and artisans and soldiers had with Near Eastern countries several centuries before Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, let me quote to you what William Albright, no relation to our very own Wayne, William Albright, renowned archaeologist. And here's a guy, he's a renowned archaeologist, scholar. He did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He taught archaeology... Uh, ancient Near Eastern archaeology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, but he's a scholar of first rate. So, but here's what he says about this issue. The idea that Greece and Hellenic culture were little known in Western Asia before Alexander the Great is difficult to eradicate. Greek traders and mercenaries were familiar in Egypt and throughout Western Asia from the early 7th century on, if not earlier. As early as the 6th century B.C., the coasts of Syria and Palestine were dotted with Greek ports and trading emporia, several of which have been discovered during the past few years. There were Greek mercenaries in the armies of Egypt and Babylonia and Nebuchadnezzar, he says. And so, I simply point that out to point out yet again how those who don't believe the Bible 
try to show that it can't be true on its own terms. And one other thing to say about those critics of the supernatural character of the Bible, that you've got a couple of Greek terms in the book of Daniel. And they seize upon those. Now think about this. They seize upon those to show that Daniel had to have been written centuries later than the Bible claims. Because you've got these couple of Greek terms. Now think about this. If Daniel were actually written after the time or during the time of the Greek Empire, how many Greek terms would you expect to find? Two? You'd have a bunch, wouldn't you? It'd be laced with Greek terms. But it's not. And the reason it's not is because it wasn't written during that period. It was written well before that. But nevertheless, uh, Greek influence existed uh, throughout the world, even before the time of Alexander the Great. And so you've got these two instruments uh, at the end of this list of instruments that are uh, Greek terms. But, the, but they are instruments. And Nebuchadnezzar says that the command is for you to bow down to the image when you hear the instruments play. So why, why instruments? Well, it's because Scripture tells us the Babylonians loved music. God had said of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, he said, Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. So God, through Isaiah, is warning, I'm going to bring you down, Babylon. But in warning, I'm going to bring you down, he mentions their, their music because they were known for their love of and use of music. And here God's people are, the God's chosen people, the Jews, taken captive in Babylon. They have the Babylonian captivity that Jeremiah prophesied, predicted would happen for, for 70 years. And then portions of your Bible are written after the exiles return from Babylon. So, you know, you've got the before the exile, you've got during the exile, and then you've got after the, the exile. And you've got portions of your Bible that are written after this has happened. And those portions that are written after the exile to Babylon occurred sometimes recall things that happened in Babylon. And an example of that is in Psalm 137. If you just hold your finger in Daniel 3, if you look at Psalm 137, and this is a psalm written after the return. From exile. In verse 1, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. Now, let me just stop for a second. This seems, you know, there's always that weird image of these harps hanging on trees, you know. <laughs> but the, the harps were, uh, were kind of a triangular shape. And so they were actually able to, to hang these quite easily. But it says, there we hung our harps. For there our captors, that would be the Babylonians, asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
So here the psalmist is looking back and thinking about those horrible days in Babylon. When we're in captivity and we are made to play, though we are in torment, we are made to sing songs of joy about Zion. And it's the Babylonians who are forcing them to do that. They're, they're lovers of music, but they are also taunting uh, the, the Israelites in, in so doing. So this is why you find Nebuchadnezzar with all of these musicians and all of these different instruments being used in his worship. Because he has taken captives, he's taken captives not just from Jerusalem, not just from Palestine, he's taken them from all over the world. And that's why you've got then these instruments that are designated by Greek names. You've got this variety of instruments because he's got a bunch of people to play them from all over. And you notice in the passage, it says, verse 4, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear, then all these different instruments are going to play. So Nebuchadnezzar is the world king. And he has gathered these people, these captives from all over the world, including Palestine. And it's signified by the fact that he's got all of these different musicians from all over the civilized world to play in his royal orchestra. We know that Nebuchadnezzar had high regard for the Greeks. He had uh, some Greek mercenaries in his army. And he also used, now get this, he also used Greek letters on rows of columns on the facade of his throne in Babylon. So it is no wonder that with all of that background, he's got these people from all over, he's got this high regard for music, high regard for, for Greek, uh, Greek uh, culture, and that you would have a couple of instruments that have Greek names. Now, I talked about the critics of, you know, the book Daniel. They're always proven wrong. And it never ceases to amaze me the links to which people who deny the Bible will go in order to deny its truth. I mean, stuff like seizing upon two Greek names for two instruments in this, in this list. But, uh, you know, critics of the Bible... Uh, do even dumber things. Um, many of you are familiar with something called uh, biblical, and then it's called higher criticism. Higher criticism. And, and the reason it's called higher criticism is it really could be called intense criticism. That is, it is, it is critical of, uh, uh, in, in, its, in its analysis of, the Bible and its origin, it is intensely critical. There's something called lower criticism, uh, which anybody who wants to study the manuscripts of the Bible has to engage in. You take all of these different manuscripts, Hebrew and, and Greek, you collate them. That's called lower criticism. It means it's not an intense criticism. It's not standing in judgment on the Bible. It's simply collecting the manuscripts and then making an evaluation, thus the word critase, criticism, making an evaluation. But higher criticism is making an intense and negative evaluation of the Bible. 
and so-called higher critics of the Bible. If you were to Google that term, you'll see what I'm talking about. But they've just done just things that are, it never ceases to amaze me. Like, they just like they can't believe Daniel was written at the time the Bible purports it to have been written, they also don't believe other portions of the Bible were written at the time the Bible says. For instance, uh, the first five books of your Bible were written by, by whom? By Moses. The Bible, the Bible attributes them to Moses. The law is called the law of Moses. Um, and so, but they say that, you know, that couldn't happen. Moses, Moses could not have lived at the time that the Bible says that, that he lived. Um, they even for a period of time said we didn't have writing at the time that Moses was supposed to have lived in the 15th century B.C. Uh, but archaeological discoveries have long proven not only do we have writing at that time, we had writing at the time of Abraham, which was 500 years before that. Okay? But that's what, they, that's what they've said. So just stay awake for three to four minutes while we look at when it was that, that um, Moses was supposed to have lived and look at what the critics say about him just because if you study Daniel, you constantly have these critics saying Daniel could not have lived because they can't deal with the fact that he was able to predict all this stuff. So 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6. First Kings six and verse one. <clears throat> In the four hundred hundred and eightieth year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. In the month of Zeb, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So the writer of 1 Kings is giving us a time stamp as to when Solomon began to build Solomon's temple. And he's saying it's in the fourth year of his reign. And it says the fourth year of the reign of Solomon is the same as the 480th year of the exodus from Egypt. So if you know when Solomon began to reign, then you can know when the fourth year of his reign was. And then you can do the math and see when the exodus from Egypt was supposed to happen. So Solomon begins his reign in 970, 970 B.C. This is in the fourth year of his reign, which would then be 966 B.C. And the exodus occurred, according to 1 Kings 6.1, 480 years prior to that. So if you were to add 480 to 966 to take you back to, you would, you would have 1446, 1446 B.C. The Bible is telling us that the exodus from Egypt led by Moses occurred in 1446 B.C. So if you believe the Bible, it occurred in the 15th century before Christ. Uh, so now if you want to know when, you know, Moses is going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, and you want to know who the Pharaoh was, then you want to look 
historically at who was the pharaoh in 1446. And his, his name turns out to be Amenhotep. Not, what did you think it was? You watched the movie, didn't you? <laughs> and what was his name in the movie? Ramses. And the reason his name is Ramses is because Ramses was the pharaoh centuries after. And Cecil B. DeMille and all of his friends, as cool as the movie is, and that really is a cool movie, especially for its time, my mom and dad met for the first time at the drive-in watching the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Imagine, I mean, that was such a big deal in like 1954 that this blockbuster movie came out, and there they are in Pikeville, <laughs> Kentucky, and they are watching this movie at the drive-in, and my dad claims he sees my mom and tells his buddy, I'm going to marry that girl. That's pretty cool. Uh, there's another cool thing about this. These two were meant to be because her name is Adi, O-T-T-I-E, and his name was Azzy, A-Z-Z-I-E. I mean, all they had to do was introduce themselves. <laughs> Say, we might as well get hitched, right? Well, anyway, I digress. They were, but... Uh, the pharaoh in the movie is, is Ramses, but Ramses was not the pharaoh in the 15th century B.C. And that's because, the, again, the critics simply have too much difficulty dealing with all of the sophistication that you see in the uh, first five books of the Bible and attributing that to the dates at which it claimed to happen. So they've come up with theories and some of you know, they say Moses then didn't write the Bible. In fact, they say four different people wrote the, Bible, wrote the first five books. Four different people. And these four different people don't have names. They just have letters. Uh, and I'm not making this up. Uh, J and E and D and P. Four letters describing four people no one has ever met. But what does it stand for? Uh, J stands for Jehovah. And they say there are portions of those first five books that were written by uh, somebody who had a liking to calling the God of Israel Jehovah or Yahweh. So he's the Jehovah writer. He wrote portions of. But then there's E. Who is he? He's the guy who likes to call the God of Israel Elohim. And so he's the E writer. And the D writer stands for the Deuteronomist. And that's the fifth of those five books, Deuteronomy. And his style is, they say, slightly different from the first four books, so he's a different guy, a third guy, the Deuteronomist. And then there's P, the priestly writer. He's the guy who wrote Leviticus and all the priestly rules and regulations and all that. J and E and D and P. And nobody's, nobody knows, has a clue who these people are. And there's no evidence, zero, nada, none, that the first five books were written by four different, different people other than, frankly, in the imagination of the higher critic. Um, <clears throat> they can't imagine that a guy like Moses, living at that time, would have at his disposal the kind of variety in writing that's displayed in the first five books. One guy could not have done that. It had to be the work of at least four people. 
And you find that in criticism of the Bible over and over and over. Daniel is criticized because he couldn't have predicted what, uh, what, he, hap- what, what he does. Um, Isaiah, they have, they have somebody called Deutero-Isaiah, a second Isaiah. I mean, and on it goes. So, friends, you have to decide, are you going to believe the Bible? Are you going to believe these dudes? I'd recommend you go with the Bible, okay? Now, we're going to talk about the furnace in, in a bit. But let's uh, look at verses 8 and following. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. (laughs) You've issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. Uh, Again, let me. (laughs) Why do we have to repeat the whole litany every time? Again, why, why do you think? It's because these guys, remember, they start with, O king, live forever. Everybody wants to be on Nebuchadnezzar's good side. You do not mess with Nebuchadnezzar. O king, live forever. And we want you to know that we have memorized, word for word, what you've decreed. And so that's why they, they repeat the thing, word for word, back to, to Nebuchadnezzar. We're on your side. But there's these Jews... Verse 11, and whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons. So you see how they've set this up. Now, it says in verse 8, Some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. But then it focuses in on these three guys. So why do you think? It's denouncing the Jews. And and the truth is, there may well have been other Jews who refused to bow down. But they zero in on these three guys. I'm I'm asking, why do you think they might have zeroed in on these three guys? And you see who's making the accusation here, the astrologers. You guys remember who got showed up? Right? So we've, we, we've been shown up. That sticks with us for a long time. That sticks in our craw. That we've got these Jews who are favored by you because they were able to do what purport, is purported to be our job better than we do. And so they come and they point these guys out. Now, where is Daniel? Because it's the three guys. And, and if anybody's going to, they're going to come after anybody, you would think it would be Daniel. But they don't mention Daniel. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. Um, I agree with a number of commentators who say Daniel was probably on business. He was one of the king's choice servants, and he was probably on business for the king. Otherwise, he would have probably been part of this as well. And so it's focused in on, on these three. Now, you remember so far in the first two chapters, these three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, have been simply tag-alongs really with, with Daniel. You know, they're Daniel's friends. And their fame is simply because they're Daniel's friends. And they came over with Daniel. But now here they are in chapter 3, and there's no Daniel. And they are 
going to take a stand on their own without Daniel around. And so this is to show us that it's not just Daniel as a superhuman guy that can take a stand for truth and the true and living God in a foreign land. But these other guys do that without Daniel around or without reference to Daniel at, at all. So they're singled out. The astrologers have increasingly developed an animus and a bitterness, and they want to destroy them. And this has been true of God's chosen people, the Jews, throughout history. That there has been an animus and a bitterness. And here we are in the first part of the Bible, your Old Testament, that, of course, is leading up to, all of it pointing to the coming of the Chosen One, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. But they're looking forward to all of this. And these enemies of God, know that the people through whom this chosen one will come, that, that people is the Jews. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God says through the seed of the woman, I'm going to bring an answer to the problem of sin. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he identifies the specific lineage through which this will come, the, the, the progeny of, of Abraham, and Satan has sought to kill and to destroy. He did that at the time, the time of Jesus as, as well. And if you would just hold your finger here, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, the end of your Bible, Revelation 12.10. Who's behind all of this? All of this hatred, animosity toward the Jews. Then I, Revelation 12, 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. The accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And as you, as you read the book of Revelation, which we will have occasion to do, especially as we get into Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel talks about a seven-year period in which God's chosen people, the Jews, will undergo a great time of tribulation. As you read through the book of Revelation, you see that. And you see that the woman has to, has to hide for safety. The woman being Israel. Because Satan is, has, has for centuries been trying to snuff them out. And this is, you know, and you look historically then at things like the Holocaust. And it begins to make some sense to you in a, a larger meta-narrative of Scripture. So they are summoned now before a furious uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 16. He says, Shadrach, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, let me stop there. When they say that, they are not saying, who are you to tell us? I mentioned a few weeks ago that Jeremiah, when Jeremiah <clears throat> is talking about the 
captivity in Babylon. He says in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, he says, our people, the Jews, need to show respect to our captors. We are being taken captive because of our own sin. So they are not being flippant here. So it sounds that way, but really what they're saying is, we don't need to give you a long oratory. We're not going to give you this long explanation, but our God is going to show you the truth. And then they go on to say, if we are thrown, verse 17, into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Yeah. I mean, they're not being disrespectful. They're just saying we must obey God rather than men, which is exactly what you have in your New Testament, Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, Acts 5, 29, when the apostles are hauled before the religious officials and told you are not to preach in this name. And they say we must obey God rather than men. Now, the NIV makes it pretty clear here. The, the King James obscures it a little bit, but if, if you're not careful, you can read verses 17 and 18 where they say, well, even if, if God does not, and especially in the King James, it sounds like almost even if God cannot save us from this. And, of course, that's not what they're saying. They, they have full trust in the fact that God can do this if he chooses to. But he may not choose to. But even if he doesn't choose to rescue us out of this blazing furnace, we're still not going to defile ourselves by disobeying our God and bowing before your image. Uh, Think about now the faith these guys have. They really do not. They don't know they're going to be delivered. And in fact, the truth of the matter is that often God's people are not delivered. And they knew that as, as well. You know, Uriah was a godly prophet, and yet he was killed by Jehoiakim. Jeremiah was, was spared, but Uriah was not. In your New Testament, Acts chapter 12 tells us that James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, but, <laughs> but that he was killed, Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, Peter was supposed to be killed as well. They put Peter in prison, and they were going to kill him, and God miraculously delivers Peter. So you see this throughout Scripture. You see sometimes God's people are spared, and sometimes they are not. And these young men knew that. God can do this, but he may choose not to do this. But even so, we are still not going to bow down. And it is inspirational in the extreme, isn't it? When you think about their faith, their belief. Come what may. So one commentator said, The quiet, modest, yet very positive attitude of faith that these three men display is one of the noblest examples in the Scriptures of faith fully resigned to the will of God. These men ask for no miracle. They expect none. Theirs is the faith that says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's a quote from Job. Do you remember Job and all his afflictions? 
and all his friends coming and saying, Job, you got a woman on the side. you got something going on. That's why you got all this happening. And he says, I simply will trust God even though I don't know what's happening. And though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So the king is, of course, furious. In verse 19, he gives the command to heat the furnace seven times hotter than usual. Now, the Babylonians, historically, had, uh, just in historical record, it's a fact that they had the ability to regulate the heat of their furnaces because they would use it to, uh, to create and melt metals. And so they knew how to manipulate the temperature. And he gives them the uh, command to turn it up seven times. Now, as you go on to read, you find that this was, this was dumb for a couple of reasons. One, he loses a few guys in the process. <laughs> but also, if you're, wanting to, if you're wanting to torment these guys that you're punishing, this, this actually means they're, they're going to be taken quicker. So if you really wanted to torment them, you would keep the temperature down, down a little bit. But this is just the irrationality of his, of his fury. But it does show the inability of man. Now hear this. The inability of man to injure beyond the limits that God sets. And there's a lesson, friends. No one can do anything that God does not allow. No one can do anything that God does not allow. And so you need not fear man. need not fear him who can destroy the body. God even controls him. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, Jesus said. The book of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I mean, sure, the, we would all be terrified to be in the situation these guys were in, but it is much more terrifying to be in the hands of a living God. And even the tormentors are in the hands of that, that living God. And our God, says the writer of Hebrews, is a consuming fire. And so these guys had that, that kind of trust. Verse 23. Verse 22, the king's command was so urgent, the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. All right. I mean, I can smile about it now because I know the outcome, but they don't know. But they have abandoned themselves to the Lord. They are tied, and they fall into, they fell into, and it actually says, literally says, they fell into the midst. So they are tied, they fell into this furnace used for heating metal that has been heated seven times hotter. They are completely helpless. And they have abandoned themselves to the will, the will of God. Their escape out of this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then we know the rest of the story. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in. Now, when it says in verse 25, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they fall in, 
they fall in to the top, and apparently there is a side to look in. And that's done, and this is what they see. Three go in, now there's four, unharmed completely, and unbound as well. Now, who is this one that they saw? You know, Nebuchadnezzar, or those who first look in, say, uh, looks like a son of the gods. Um, and so, so who is this? Well, you know, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say. However, uh, you have this phrase in the Old Testament that if you ever wanted to do an interesting study, you could do this. You could look up the phrase, angel of the Lord. If you were to look up the phrase, angel of the Lord, you would find that the angel of the Lord turns out to be God. The angel of the Lord is spoken of as God, is worshipped as God, shows up at various times throughout the Old Testament. And after the coming of Jesus, you never have the angel of the Lord appear again. And I believe, as many others do, that the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate, that is, prior to coming to earth, manifestation of God the Son. And in all likelihood, God the Son is with these three young men and showing his power over this most powerful human, human king. Now, God brings them, brings them through this, brings them out of it. There's going to come a time when the Jews are going to go through a time of tribulation such as has never been seen on the earth, said Jesus. And yet God is going to bring them through it. That's what the book of Revelation says. God will bring them through it as he brought these three young men through this fiery trial. He will bring them through it. He will take us out of it. And there's a difference. There will be some on earth to go through it. God will turn his attention once again to his chosen people, the Jews, in the seven-year tribulation. And he will take them through it. But the Bible teaches he will take the church out of it. And I'd like to end with that. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10. If you have a red letter edition, there are red letters here. Because this is Jesus talking. And Jesus says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now notice how it's phrased. It's important. I will keep you from the hour. See, it's, it's different than I will keep you through the hour. I will keep you from the hour. And the words that's translated from is... I know we get technical sometimes, but, you know, it's God's Word, so. And it's uh, the preposition ek, which means out of. When I was uh, in seminary, I wrote a paper on Revelation 3.10. And the promise to take the church out of that hour. 
And this is what we call the rapture. And you find it spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, <clears throat> where the Bible says we will be caught up. And that's in Latin. In Latin, the Greek word that's translated, that is uh, translated uh, caught up, harpazo, is the Greek word. The, the Latin word is rapturo. And we get rapture from that. So sometimes people say, you know, rapture is not in the Bible. Well, if you've if you got a Latin version, it is. <laughs> That's where we get rapture from. And so we will be caught up. When will we be caught up? When we are kept from, taken out of this hour of trial that's going to come upon the earth. But God will again now focus his attention upon his people, the Jews, to fulfill his plan for the ages. And he will take them through that fiery trial just as he did these three young men in the book of book of Daniel. All right, I think uh, we've beat it up for this week. We'll look at chapter 4 next week, and I encourage you to do the, the homework so that uh, you have an idea of what chapter 4 is about, okay? Thanks.